The title of my message this morning is The Challenge for Today, and my text is Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts, that we might understand even and appreciate and to receive the words that you have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text, Romans 13, 11 to 14, says, And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You know, these are exciting times in which to live. We are in the age of social media all of these mass communications, unprecedented uh, technological developments, economic prosperity, and, and much, much more. However, as marvelous as many of these advancements are, not everything is hunky-dory in the world and here in America. And us older folk, uh, folks recall what we call the good old days. Now, they may not have been drastically superior but they seemed a, a better and a more peaceful time. And yet, on any given day in 2018, and we're only a day away from the dawn of another new year, our radio and television broadcasts, our newspapers, if anyone still reads newspapers, and of course the Internet are filled with stories confirming the fact that our world, our nation, are in real trouble. We're living in a rapidly decaying society with a decomposing morality. Violence and crime is increasing. Political corruption is rampant. Integrity is a scarce commodity. And we could go on and on. The problem is our collective view of right and wrong has slowly but surely shifted from a strong biblical foundation to one based on personal gratification and, and personal fulfillment. We're living in a society which not only disregards, but it openly ridicules those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and the truths of God's Word. These realities clearly characterize our day and age. And I believe they present enormous challenges for those of us who would be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in the remaining moments this morning, I'd like to consider what is the challenge for today, as laid out for us in our text, where Paul gives us three specific commands. First of all, he says, wake up. Verse 11 of Romans 13, and this do knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And so the first challenge for today is found in this exhortation to awaken from sleep. 
Now, it was a, uh, originally a message for the first century church, obviously. But it should also be a message for the church of today. It's time for Christians to wake up and, and see just how late the hour is. And so the question a slumbering church needs to ask is, what time is it? Paul says it's time to get up because our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now in this same verse, verse 13, Paul uses the phrase, knowing the time. Now, what is the time to which he is referring? It seems clear to me that he means what the Bible calls the end times or the last days. He's referring to a time just before the rapture of the church when Jesus returns in the clouds to complete his marvelous plan of redemption for his children. But how can that be, you ask? I thought Jesus said, no one knows the day nor the hour of his return, only the Father in heaven. This is true. We cannot know precisely when Christ will come again. But there are some important things we can know about his return. While the Bible teaches that we can't know the exact day or hour, it also teaches that we can observe the signs around us in order not to be taken by surprise at his coming. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, we read, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. In other words, we should be able to discern from the signs of the times around us that Jesus is coming soon. Now, is there any scriptural evidence that we are living in the end times? I believe there is, indeed. You know, many passages can be found in the scriptures, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we find one of the most graphic pictures of the last days. It says in verses 1 to 5, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Are we not seeing these kinds of things prophesied in the scriptures happening today, even at an alarming rate? And in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a few more signs. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, verse 6. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, verse 7. You will be hated by all nations on account of my name, verse 9. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, verse 11. Lawlessness will increase, verse 12. And the gospel shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come, verse 14. It should be quite clear to any discerning Christian that Jesus' return is closer than ever. 
Moreover, think about how much closer it is today than when Paul penned these words some 2,000 years ago. Now, we've noted that Paul says our salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. But how is our salvation nearer? Were we not saved when we first believed? Had we not then and there received salvation? I believe the key to understanding this statement is found in the biblical meaning of salvation. What Paul is saying here is the fullness of our salvation or the completion of our salvation is near. Remember, salvation is a process that only begins when we are born again. You see, there is a past to our salvation called justification. By way of justification, we receive deliverance from the penalty of sin and we're made right with God. My father taught in my confirmation class back in 1963, justification is just as if I had never sinned. Justification is when I enter into God's presence. I stand in Jesus' shoes and Jesus stands in my shoes. And God the Father no longer sees my imperfection, but he sees the perfection of his Son, Jesus Christ. But there's also a present to our salvation called sanctification. In sanctification, we are day by day being rescued from the power of sin. Sanctification is the lifelong process by which we are continually set apart as the Holy Spirit makes us holy and pleasing to God. And then there is a future to our salvation called glorification. One day we will be miraculously changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, glorified, completely saved from sin and from that old sinful nature that we have. And what a day that will be. And so the completion, the fulfillment, the consummation of our salvation is nearer today than it was the day we first believed. Clearly, the hour is late and Jesus may return at any moment. Moreover, there is nothing in God's prophetic calendar that needs fulfilled before Christ comes at the rapture. Jesus may come at any time, and we must be ready, for he may come yet even today. And so I ask you, are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you constantly abiding in him? The Apostle John reveals good reason for abiding in him. He writes in 1 John 2.28, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We want to be abiding in him so that when he comes, we can meet him confidently. I wonder, are you abiding in him? Are you eagerly awaiting his return? I just love this passage from Hebrews uh, verse 28 in the ESV. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and of course this he did the first time he came when he died on Calvary's cross. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, which, as we've noted, he already did that the first time he came. 
But he will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ's coming again will be for the purpose of completing the salvation of those who are eagerly awaiting him. Are you, as Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Are you looking for him? Are you eagerly waiting for him? And so, first of all, Paul says, wake up. And secondly, he says, get dressed. Verse 12, the night is almost gone. And the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the night is almost gone? I believe he's speaking of the night of Christ's absence. The night of his absence is almost over and the day of his return is almost here. The image Paul uses is that of a morning sunrise. When the sky is still dark, and yet as we look in the eastern sky or toward the eastern sky, we begin to see a faint glimmer of the sun as it pierces the darkness. And what most of us probably do after we wake up is get out of bed and put our clothes on. If we wear night clothes, you know, our jammies, we take them off and we put on our day clothes. The exhortation, verse 12, is to lay aside the night clothes, lay aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Now, if we are to live in the light of His coming, if we are to respond to the challenge of today, we must be aware of the dangers all around us. As Satan's time runs out, he is sure to intensify his attacks on the kingdom of God. And he'll make every effort to deceive and discourage and destroy every Christian that he can. And so we must turn our backs on sin and take up the armor of Christ. That is, put on Christ and be clothed in him. Paul says, wake up, get dressed. And thirdly, he says, get your act together. Verses 13 and 14 of our text. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Get your act together is an expression from a few years ago, which means to think about our direction in life. Consider our priorities, our values, our lifestyle, and then actually live them out each day. And that is precisely the message of our text. It's a call for Christians to get their act together. It's a call for Christians to be all that God would have them to be in attitude, in thought, in word, and in deed. In these last two verses of our text, we see both a negative and a positive side. Looking first at the negative, we find six sins mentioned here presented in pairs. Thus, we could say that we have three categories of sin. The first category has to do with the Christian's behavior before the world. We're not to be involved in carousing and drunkenness. 
These sins relate to our personal discipline and are truly characteristic of a worldly lifestyle. What we are being told here is don't live for the flesh. Don't be one who lives only to have a good time. The word carousing could be translated as partying. And the New Oxford Dictionary defines it as drinking plentiful amounts of alcohol and enjoying oneself with others in a noisy, lively way. And so the Bible clearly states that carousing and drunkenness are wrong. And furthermore, they will always severely damage our testimony. The second area of sinful behavior has to do with the believer's life in private. It relates to our personal lifestyle in the area of immorality and debauchery. And what we're being told is don't live for sensual pleasures. An intimate, an intimate physical relationship between a man and a woman began in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, it was God's idea. God gave the gift to Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, by the way. You know, I find it incredulous that even some in the church have endorsed various sexual perversions. And in our culture, there are many of them. And yes, we, and yes, we must welcome all sinners and we must invite them in. For they too must hear the gospel message in their need to repent of their sin. God's word clearly states, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Moreover, we are to go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that God's house may be filled as we read in Luke chapter 14. But for the church or members of the church to affirm and sanction a lifestyle that is clearly condemned by the scriptures is blatant rebellion against God. As Pastor Peter mentioned in his series on the book of James, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. Remember, Jesus dearly loved the sinner, but he never condoned their sin. And so we must always be lovingly honest as we confront lost sinners and back, backslidden Christians about their sin. The third category of sinfulness has to do with the Christian's relationship with others. It relates to a lack of love which generates strife and jealousy. What Paul is saying is don't live for selfish ambition, for it inevitably leads to discord and dissension. Love is the exact opposite of selfish ambition. Love always seeks the best for others. And when selfish desires dominate our lives, they create strife and jealousy. The Christian lifestyle should be characterized by love for all people. 
Now, these are the negative aspects from verses 13 and 14. On the positive side, in these two verses, we're commanded to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and not dwell on gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. And furthermore, not only are we instructed to avoid certain behavior, but to avoid circumstances which may entice us to sin. I think if we are honest with ourselves, we know those areas where we are vulnerable to temptation. We know the people and the situations which tempt us to sin. The Bible says that we are not to make provision for the flesh. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus warned that we must avoid anything and everything that may cause us to stumble. Too many Christians say they have a desire not to sin, yet they repeatedly place themselves in the midst of the temptation. God always provides a way to escape. Paul reiterates this truth in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way will be provided, but you must take it. When God yells fire, you need to get out of the building as fast as you can. On the other hand, we must stand for Jesus Christ. Stand for righteousness. Stand clothed in his armor of light. Stand empowered by his precious Holy Spirit. Friend, we are living in challenging times. We're living in what may very well be the last days. I cannot know when Jesus will come again, but I know I must be ready to meet him. How about you? Are you ready to meet Jesus? We all need to wake up, get dressed, and get our act together. That's the challenge for today. In closing, it was nearing the day of Jesus' crucifixion, and it was clearly an agonizing time for his disciples. And he told them to not let their hearts be troubled. John chapter 14. He said he was going to prepare a place for them. And after their dwelling place was completed, he said, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Then he added, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas questioned him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is coming again. He himself said so. He's coming again to take his children home to be with the Father. Are you a member of God's family? Will you be taken up when he comes for his children? Only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is that, is that possible. As an old man who has walked with Jesus for more than 60 years, I eagerly look forward to his return. 
My father said many times, I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the uppertaker. And I would have to add, me too, Dad. And I trust you can say, me too. Jesus is coming again, and it could be today. Jim Hill wrote about that glorious day back in 1955, declaring, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be.